This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. We're going to be in John chapter 21 today, and it really is just an example of that, of Jesus asking Peter these three times, Peter, do you love me? A lot had changed in the lives of the disciples, and a lot had changed in the life of Peter over the last four years. Peter had had a brother who was a disciple of John the Baptist, and I'm sure hearing of John the Baptist and surveying and being a part of that, and it was during an encounter with John the Baptist that Peter had first encountered Jesus. He had been called by Jesus to follow him from the Sea of Galilee in a second meeting, and it wasn't long before Jesus was a part of this group of 12. They were being imparted opportunities to serve by Jesus. He's imparting his life to them. He selected them, even though they were not of the the, you know, any of them were not religious scholars, but they were men who were faithful, they were available, and they were teachable. Peter had been there and along being sarcastic with the other disciples about the feeding of the 5,000 when they said, you know, we have these five pieces of bread and fish, but, but what are these? And in that moment, he had seen in the moments that followed Christ do something that was absolutely incredible as he, along with the other disciples, all sat at the end of that with a basket full of fish and loaves being reminded of the power of God. He had seen the example of godliness and, and sinlessness in Christ. He had been challenged by Christ to deny himself and to take up his cross Peter had been there as Jesus walked in the water, and yes, he stepped out of the boat, and it was in that moment where he had again saw the very power of God as he was sustained, but yet when he began to look at his circumstances, he sank into the water, and Jesus retrieves him and restores him. He had been there on the Mount of Transfiguration when the glory of God was displayed in Christ. And the, the Spirit of God was, was dwelling as if it did even in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory, the Father speaking from heaven. And he is saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And it is obvious that Christ is being revealed as the Son of God in all of his glory. And Peter says, it's time to build a temple because this does not happen. Right? This, is a, this is a once in a, uh, a decade, once in a, a, a forever moment where the Spirit of God is dwelling. Jesus, I mean, Peter had spoken to the claims of Christ as he had said, well, who do men say that I am? And he had said, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And again, when many of the disciples were leaving and Jesus looked at the disciples and said, will you go also? And Peter had said, well, who, where will we go? For you have the words of life. He had made claims of undying love, that he would never deny, that he would never falter, that he would never fail. But yet in that upper room, he lacks humility to even allow Jesus to wash his feet. Jesus is arrested in the garden that night, and he is willing to draw the sword. He is willing to fight. He is willing to do whatever it takes to protect Jesus. And yet, in the moments that would follow, he would find himself in a very different situation. 
Within just hours, he would be in the courtyard of the high priest. And he would find himself questioned. And he would deny that he was one of the followers. He would find himself questioned again. And he would, he would absolutely deny. And then on the third time, uh, literally in one of the Gospels, it says he is cursing. We would say he said, blankety, blank, blank, I do not know him. And before the words can even come off of his lips, there's a rooster crowing. And the words of Christ and the pain of his denial in that moment had to hit him in a way that cut him to the heart. They had been hiding, not knowing what would happen after the crucifixion, what would happen to him, what would happen to his companions. There was uncertainty and there was fear. And yet, in a moment when it seemed darkest, there was a knock at the door. And Mary came and she spoke of a tomb that was open. And Peter ran to the tomb and he actually gets there and he is bold enough to go running in and he sees something that he did not expect. And Christ appears just a little while later to him. And Christ appears a second time to the disciples. And yet, in all of those appearances, Peter is fully aware of his denials. He is fully aware of his failure. He probably feels like he's gone from being the first of the disciples to being the last and the least of the disciples. Jesus had asked him and the other disciples to meet him in Galilee. No specific place, no assigned date, no clear time of day. And quite frankly, they were broke, right? Judas is gone, the money's gone. What do they do? So we're going to pick up in John 21, and it says, verse 1, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were there. So there's seven of these disciples that are there in Galilee. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. And they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now you think about it. These men grew up as commercial fishermen. Right? They're there. They don't know when Christ is going to show up. They're, they're uncertain about what's ahead. And so if you have a skill and a talent and you're at the sea and you probably from their network can get a boat, let's catch some fish. Maybe they're, they're looking to just buy some fish and to sell those fish and somehow sustain themselves until Christ comes. And so notice it says that they cast the net on the right side of the boat. Oh, excuse me, back up. The daybreak came, verse 4, and Jesus stood on the shore. But disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called out. Do you have any fish? Do you? No, they answered. Now, you know, every fisherman loves this, right? You've been fishing all day. You've been out. You're coming back to shore. And there's always somebody, at the, and, you, and you didn't catch a thing, all right? You have worked. You have strategized. You have thought, and you have caught absolutely nothing. And there's always somebody at the dock that says, so what'd you do? how'd you do? 
right? And then when you say nothing, they have lots of advice for you of the things that you could have done, places you could have gone. And then especially when you find out they really don't know a whole lot about fishing, most fishermen don't receive that very well. So Jesus says to them, hey, let me give you, a, let me give you an idea. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some, right? So reluctantly implied they did. And they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. And the disciple, the one Jesus loved, speaking of John, speaking of himself, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now we make the connection, right? From, you remember the story from Luke chapter 5 at the beginning of their calling? A very similar kind of event happens. Peter's a little slow. He's not making that connection. In fact, if you look at this passage in Luke 5, says, when they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boat so, that they, uh, so much that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me because I am a sinful man. For he and all those who were with him were amazed and the catch of fish they had taken and so there were James and John, see John's there, and Zebedee's sons who were Simon's partners. And then in Matthew of the same, the same event, it says that follow me, he told them, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And immediately they had left their nets and followed him. So it's almost as if Jesus is recreating this moment from the beginning of their ministry, the beginning of their call with Christ, to now they're back in Galilee, back doing what's familiar, as if this whole three and a half years period of time, they're trying to make sense of that. And Peter is reeling with pain, knowing of his failure, knowing of his denial. And Jesus comes again to those shores. And Jesus once again calls out to the boats of the men. And it says that when John says, John says, this is eerily familiar. He says, Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter, again, is out of the boat. Right? He is on his way. Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord when he tied his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and he plunged into the sea. And since they were not far from land, about 100 yards, the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. It was just fascinating how they come. And when they get there, something very ironic has happened. I want you to catch this. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish that you've caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, even though they were so many the net was not torn and he says come and have breakfast jesus told them and none of the disciples dare ask who are you because they knew it was the lord now what's fascinating here is that jesus reenacts in many ways what would have been a very common occurrence in their in their ministry together for them to be together for a meal for them to have fish for there to be a charcoal fire, for them to be sitting around and him teaching and sharing and pouring into them. It would not have been a, a, an uncommon event at all. And Jesus reenacts this very familiar scene to them. And so all of the disciples 
come together. And it seems very natural. But none of them are speaking. I mean, none of them dare say a thing. Because really, in essence, they're unsure what's going to happen next. The problem, though, is the last time Peter was around a charcoal fire was not with Jesus. You remember in the denials, he's around a fire, charcoal fire, there in the courtyard of the high priest. The last time Peter was around a charcoal fire, it was in that courtyard, and he was denying Christ. And no one dares to say a thing. Now, how do we process this? I mean, as I, as I study this passage and look at it, you know, I thought, you know, we've all failed, right? We've all been Peter at some level. We've all failed. We've all acted in ways that we never thought possible. We have all disappointed someone. We have all felt the sting of those moments when we realized just how much we had disappointed someone. And we have to ask the question, where is Christ in those moments? How do we find mercy and forgiveness in those moments? Peter desires that. He had done so much, he had said so much, and yet when it counted, when everything was on the line, he had failed. And how, do you, how does Peter recover from that? And it's interesting that after breakfast, it says Jesus starts the conversation. So I want you to see that second of all. Notice how Pete Jesus restores Peter in this moment. You see there in verse 15, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Second time he asked Peter, son of, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know I love you. Shepherd my sheep. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Why is he asking this question? He is grieved that he asked it a third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know, he's basically saying, you know my heart, or you know that I love you. And then he said, feed my sheep. Now this seems kind of an odd conversation, right? Why is he, why is he suddenly talking with Peter about sheep? You know, he's, when he did this event before, he was talking about becoming a fisher of men. And so why is he now talking about caring for sheep? But we know that this is not a new conversation. He had told Peter, yes, that he would become a fisher of men, that he would have to care, but he would have to care for and nurture the men he would influence. And it's interesting that both Isaiah and Ezekiel speak of the nation of Israel as God's sheep and the need for shepherds to truly shepherd them and to care for them. And what's fascinating is in this passage, Jesus basically says three things. He says to Peter, first of all, tend my lambs. In other words, care for the small lambs. It was the word that you would use to care for these small new birth lambs 
that you would be caring for. And so you need to care for them. You need to make sure that they're healthy, that they're growing. And someone has to tend and care for them. Then he says, then in the next one, shepherd my sheep. And it has the idea of caring for the grown sheep. You know, it's the shepherd who has all of the sheep and he's out there giving care. He's looking after all of the sheep. And then he says in the last one, feed my sheep, which has the idea of, of bringing them to maturity or being healthy. In other words, nurture them to health. It was a word that shepherds would use to take a, a lamb that was no longer young, a lamb that was probably a year old. And so how are we going to get this lamb healthy where it produces wool, where it can reproduce as a, a mother, where it can be reproduced and healthy to be able to sail? And to, or to give it as a sacrifice. And so he uses these three different levels of caring for the young lambs, of shepherding the entire congregation or the entire group of sheep and bringing to maturity and to health those sheep that were, that were probably what we would say about a year or two years old. Now I want to give you a couple quotes from the Old Testament that may bring this into perspective. Notice Ezekiel 34. God says, I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them, and he will tend them himself, and will be their shepherd. So Jesus is telling Peter, and we have this prophecy here that my servant David, being the Messiah, that he would be the shepherd, right? He's the chief shepherd. He would be the one that would be shepherding, but yet it would be through his servants. It would be through the, the leaders that the sheep would be cared for and tended for. Isaiah 40 says he protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the full of his garment and he gently leads those that are nursing. Nursing, again, it's that idea of tending for the young lambs. Jeremiah 23 says, I will raise up shepherds over them who will tend them. And they will no longer be afraid or discouraged, nor will any be missing. This is the Lord's declaration. And so Jesus is reminding Peter that, yes, his role was the, the, the bringing of men to faith. But yet that role did not stop there, that there was a continuation for his ministry that would go beyond the fishing aspect, but to the shepherding aspect. And just as Christ is the chief shepherd, that he calls leaders and calls us to be a part of, of caring for one another, for tending to one another, for discipling one another. And he's reminding Peter that he must rediscover his calling. So I think it's fascinating that when Peter is now questioning everything about his calling, that Jesus comes to him and basically says, Peter, it's time to get back in the game. Now what's fascinating here is he tells him And basically reminds him that his grace and his mercy is more than sufficient to restore him. Right? Don't ever think that your sin somehow is greater than the Lord's mercy. 
Don't ever think that your sin somehow overrides God's forgiveness because it does not. He is more than enough. His mercy is more than enough. And in the midst of this, Peter is understanding that, the, that he's asking him, do you love me? And if you sincerely love me, if you sincerely are expressing that love as you have repented, and he says to him, feed my sheep. And so it's a fascinating process. And the fact that, that Peter needs to express his genuine love for Christ by rediscovering his calling and being willing to follow him. Now it's fascinating because he says at the end of this, this paragraph there in verse 19, follow me. Jesus is not going to allow Peter to stay paralyzed in the past but his calling him to move forward to an even greater passion and love. Now, I think it's fascinating that Peter mentions uh, this idea uh, in, of, of, of growing up and this idea of the flock two times in his epistle. I want you to see these. Now, notice, first of all, there, 1 Peter chapter 2. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter reminds us that our process for growth is in the Lord. Our process for maturity is in his word. And he reminds us that the, the ability for us to move into maturity is that we are to grow up into salvation. And it's a reminder that Peter understood these words of Christ and he's challenging them, grow up into your faith. But again, in 1 Peter 5, he makes, these he makes this statement. Shepherd God's flock among you, among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as the Lord would have you, not of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock, so that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter sees his ministry as being a shepherd for the great shepherd. He sees his ministry as carrying out the ministry of Christ in humility. And he understands that there is a, a gift that's been entrusted to him. And he, and he wants to be sure that when the chief shepherd appears, that he's doing what God's called him to do. And for all of us, that we will receive that unfading crown of glory. Now, it's interesting here because in these verses, Jesus makes a statement to him. He says, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you do not want to go. And he said this to indicate what kind of death Peter, by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after this, he told him, and you see those words, follow me. So Jesus is challenging Peter to be an expression of God's love and getting out and doing and carrying out the ministry that he'd been called to. All that had happened to this point was not all of there was. It was the training. It was the equipping. It was the preparation. And yes, in his greatest moment of failure, Christ is restoring him and saying to him, there is a work for you to do. All of this was for this moment so that you could continue to go forward.
In just a matter of weeks, Peter will be in the temple and he'll be preaching as the Spirit of God moves. And this group of disciples will go from 120 to well over 3,000 people, literally in the preaching of one sermon. And Peter all of a sudden will find himself not in a fishing position, right, but in a shepherding position as he shepherds the church. And just like when Jesus came into that upper room and he looked at these disciples who were arguing, who is the greatest, who is the greatest, which one of us is the greatest? Jesus, knowing who he was, knowing that everything had been given to him, knowing that he's going back to be with the Father, he does something totally unexpected, and that is he takes off his robe and he kneels and he washes the disciples' feet because there was another lesson for them to learn. He's on the shore of Galilee with Peter, and he's seeing ahead all that's in in view for Peter, for the ministry, for the places that he will go, the, 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 the number of people he will preach to, the number of lives he will impact. And he sees Peter as paralyzed in his situation. And he says to him, do you love me, Peter? It's time for you to, to take what I've given you and to go and shepherd and show the true expression of God's love. And it's just this beautiful, beautiful picture of restoration. But he reminds Peter that the success of that will not be of yourself. Because when you're a kid, right, you can run around, you can do what you want. You know, you want to go outside and play, you go outside and play, you do what you want to do. But when Peter would would grow older, he wouldn't be going where he wanted to go anymore because he would be bound. It's really the idea of they'll stretch out your hands and they will put you in shackles. And we know that in 19, excuse me, not 1964, in AD 64, under the, the Roman Emperor Nero, Peter was arrested. Peter was shackled. Peter was marched out, basically in a trial to deny Christ. And it was a very often many of these trials, they would say to the Christians, proclaim Caesar as Lord. Proclaim Caesar as Lord, right? Cesar Curios. And many of these Christians would say, Christos Curios, Christ is Lord. We don't have a lot of details, but it could be that Peter said something similar. And they stretched out his hands and they were about to crucify him. And church tradition, we don't know this for sure, says that Peter said, I do not want to be crucified in the same way of Jesus And so he asked for them to turn him upside down and to crucify him upside down on a cross. Peter is reminded by Jesus that the path to success, right? The path to the gospel to the ends of the earth will not be without suffering. It will not be without a price. It will not be without continual struggle. And yes, we know that Peter experience that and experience suffering in fact it says here in in fact he writes in his epistle as well these words see him here dear friends don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you instead rejoice rejoice as you share in the sufferings of christ so that 
you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing that is good. Now, I love how the, the, John says this. Notice what he says, that Peter would glorify God. But before that, he said that he would indicate the kind of death. And it says Peter would glorify God. Now, it's very possible that John is writing this gospel. Some people will date John's gospel early. Some will date it a little bit later. And it's very possible that by the time that John is writing this letter, Peter is already dying. And John's aware of it. And he's reminded and he th- his mind is going back to those words that Jesus said to Peter. That the glory of God in his life would be revealed, yes, through his preaching, Yes, through his shepherding the church. Yes, through his proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. But it would also be revealed in his suffering. And when he makes this statement to Peter, he looks at him again and gives him these words, Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Now, Peter, you know, it's interesting here. He kind of redirects, right? He tries to deflect off of what Jesus is saying here. So it says that Peter turned around there in verse 20 and saw the disciple Jesus loved, again, John, following them. The one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? And so that's in verse, uh, chapter 12 of the same book. So he's clarifying exactly who he's talking about. And when Peter saw him, he said, what about him? Right? He's feeling this pressure of Jesus saying, follow me, glorify me. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And so Peter does what many of us do. He deflects. You know, and, and, and we do that, right? It's very easy to look at a passage like this and realize, hey, we have skills and talents and ministries that the Lord has given us. And we need to be about those. And like Peter, it can be so easy because of failures, because of other things in our life that we kind of kick ourselves back into, into neutral. And we don't serve in the way we did at one time. We're not as passionate about reading God's word we did at one time. We, you know, it just seems like there, there's, a, there's a, a vacuum that just didn't used to be there in our spiritual life. And it's almost like you can feel yourself becoming more anemic and more anemic in your spiritual life. And then someone calls us on it, right? The Spirit of God convicts us about it. And we say, well, yeah, yeah, I could be doing more, but, but you know, I, I'm not the only one, right? I'm not the only one around me. I mean, I see some other people that used to be serving. They're not serving. Which is a very Western type of mindset. You know, when did we decide that to measure our spiritual vitality by the laziness of someone else? Let me say that again. When did we decide 
to measure our spiritual vitality because someone else is being lazy. And we want to justify our apathy by pointing out the apathy of others. And Jesus deals with this, and he deals with it head on, and he looks Peter straight in the eye, and he says, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. See, the, the reality of those statements is that God's not going to hold you accountable for somebody else. He's going to hold you accountable for you. And he wants to see the expression of your love, right? Because that's true of all of us. You know, I've been a Christian for years. Do you love Jesus? Well, of course I love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Well, you know I love Jesus. Do you really love Jesus? Of course. Why would you ask me that question a third time? You know that I love Jesus. So how are you expressing that? How are you sharing the gospel with others? Who are you pouring into? Who are you discipling? How is it that your expression of love just seems to become less and less and less and less rather than more and more and more? And we fall into this so easily. I can find myself where Peter is again and again and again. And we've got to change how we view these things. We've got to see ourselves as disciples and learners. We've got to see ourselves as disciple makers and learners and that we have a work to do. We have a calling to do. We have something to be busy about. And some of you need to be serving. You need to be serving in your Sunday school class, your Bible study class, to tend, to care, to feed. Some of you need to re-engage in ministry. And you know that there's an area that the Lord has put on your heart and you see it in the church and you say to yourself, I just think that needs to be better. I just think someone needs to be serving these young adults better. I think there needs to be a better presence of greeters and hospitality. I think that, um, you know, there needs to be more Bible study groups. And the reminder is, that God may be calling you to that role. Some of you need to go on mission, right? Some of you need to re-engage in that area. And just as Peter has to come to terms with that and say, all right, I'm following. We need to come to terms with those same things. You know, there are so many opportunities in the life of this church. There are so many opportunities for you to serve and to get involved. We're going to the Eastern Shore in a few weeks to do work over there for a few days. You could come for one day. You could come for three days and help serve. And we have a calling as a church body to be about. We are living in a community that is projected to explode in growth over the next 10 to 15 years. And the people who will walk through our doors, the people who will engage uh, in our congregation... And the families that will come to this church, who's serving them? Who's working in those areas? And so it's an area where we all have to say, Lord, what are you calling me to do? And for us to be busy about the work that he's called us to do. I think it's interesting that Jesus had also made this statement about following. In Luke chapter 9, notice it here. 
Then he said to all, whoever wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will be saved. Follow me, he tells Peter. Follow me. There may be some of you today in this room that you're struggling with just the issue of do I even believe in Jesus, right? Is Jesus Lord? Is he Lord of your life? And the awareness probably for you, like it was for me, is that you're broken. And you, no one has to tell you you're broken because it's apparent to you, it's apparent to your soul, and it's apparent because nothing you are doing can fill that vacuum within. And the reminder to you today is Christ calls you to follow him, to believe, to trust, to repent, to believe that Christ died for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose again, to bring you salvation. Peter will be standing in a few days and he will say to that crowd, repent and believe. And he says that to you today as well. I'm going to tell you, this was a hard sermon, right? This is one of these passages where you go into it and you're like, I've always wanted to kind of study that and just kind of figure out why he keeps asking him about following and loving and sheep and, sheep and all these kind of things. And then you find yourself in the middle of the study and you're like, this sermon isn't about the people you're going to preach to on Sunday morning, right? <laughs> Lord reminded me it was about me. I hope you've gone on a journey of discovery with me as I did this week, even this morning, to be reminded that our call is to follow Christ. No matter the cost, no matter what it takes. And when we begin to place ourselves and our needs, and we allow these past disappointments to begin to define us, that the Lord would confront us and say to us, do you love me? Then be about the work. I hope you find the Lord's call afresh and anew today as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just the reminder from this passage of your love for us, of your love for Peter. And these disciples, how you brought all this together to remind Peter of the work that you had called him to and the work that you needed him to be about in shepherding your sheep and being a shepherd for the chief shepherd and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us, you would remind me that we shepherd under you, that you are the chief shepherd and this is your work. We have your calling. And, Father, I pray that you would challenge us as a church, that you would challenge us in these days to be pursuers of you. Father, thank you for um, the opportunity we've had today just to look into your word. Pray for anyone who needs to believe today that they, you would give them the courage to, to maybe come forward as we sing, to say afterward, to ask questions, to engage with another believer. And Lord, that they would find and discover the joy of believing in you and the joy of following you. Father, we love you. And we pray that our lives would truly be an expression of that love. And we ask this prayer.
I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.